Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast season two. My name is Birgit Tremmel-Werner. And I'm Martin Diesenberry. In this season, we are focusing on the theme of wealth and the writing of history. We're delighted to be joined today by Professor Nadine Hay, who is a junior professor at the Free University of Berlin and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. Nadine, in your work, uh, you're especially interested in the history of tuna and tuna fishing in Japan. So tuna is a very global topic. It's very popular. Tuna sells for enormous prices um, at markets, uh, both in Europe and the United States. When and why did tuna become such a source of wealth? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think it became such a source of wealth in the 1970s, more or less, and it had to do with a promotion of tuna as sashimi product, mainly by Japanese fisheries during that time, and it was also very much part of a Cold War history in that time, and in that course, Japanese fisheries really tried to promote and sell tuna and various related products on a global scale. And what would these other related products be? Yeah, it was not only tuna, it was also, um, for instance, shrimps. But tuna, I think, was really the, the most important commodity in this, in this sort of broader seafood um, economy, also in terms of wealth, both abroad but also for the domestic Japanese fisheries. In the 1970s, that was? Yes, more or less. I mean, you could also, of course, have traces that started much earlier, and especially as this whole negotiations about the territorialization and regulations of what is called sort of exclusive economic zones and 200-mile zones, a sort of renationalization of the, the ocean started in the 1950s. And from this time onwards, um, Japanese tuna fisheries already tried to promote and sell various tuna products on a very global scale. But it also has it, um, had a changing value on a domestic ground, especially in terms of the, what is usually called bubble economy, um, sort of economic miracle and high growth in economic terms on the domestic ground enabled um, people to buy these luxury tuna goods, which, by the way, um, 100 years ago would not have been estimated as a luxury good. Why wouldn't it have been a luxury good 100 years ago? Um, during that time, high-protein, sort of red flesh, um, would have been also, in terms of religion, but also in terms of how to sort of get use of that and even fish that food, would not have been um, a high-valued sort of food. So other proteins, mainly vegetable proteins, would have been estimated much more. And also in terms of refrigeration technology, it would not even have been possible to sort of make use of this red flesh for a long time. So it changed also with technology over time, um, but sort of food became more valuable or could even be accessible to various groups. And what then was the role of tuna about 100 years ago? It was basically just fed to cats or used for other purposes, or fertilizer was actually one of the uses. So it was not only meant as food, but also as fertilizer for rice and plants, which was a different value. How do you use tuna as fertilizer? You basically dry it, and then you, you use the sort of flakes and the, the substances that come out um, to put on the fields. 
So you, you also know, you, you have this with whales, basically, and other fish, so it's not a particular sort of attribute of tuna. But these flakes can also be eaten, right? But that would be then a different species. So I think that's a very important um, thing on the table here, that we have to differ between various tuna species and one that was for a very long time um, a precious sort of species and also an important food source was another, not sort of the red tuna um, we usually would refer to when we now talk about sashimi or sushi, but another species which um, is then the skipjack tuna. And there, these sort of flakes have been um, consumed much earlier and would have, um, were used as a flavor in various dishes much earlier onwards. So we have talked a bit about the consumers now, but who is catching this tuna? It depends also on the species. So there are various groups and subgroups and also various techniques to catch um, various different species among this tuna um, group. And when it comes to skipjack, as we talked about this um, before, it is mainly people from Okinawa that have special skills to get these fish, fish out of the water. And so we have various techniques. Pole and line is one of them, but also what is called muroami, which is a huge net. And do, then you gather the fish basically while diving into a big net. So there are a lot of different artisanal um, techniques which are mixed up later, which means then at the beginning of the 20th century with scientific insights. So you mentioned Okinawa, and I mean, Okinawa traditionally, at least until the late 19th century, was not part of Japan. It was an independent or semi-independent um, kingdom. So uh, is the story of Okinawan fishermen becoming involved in the fishing of Japanese tuna also therefore a story of the emergence of the modern Japanese state? Yes, very much, I think. And in a way... It is, is a double-layered story. In a way, they are estimated from this, by the central state or the imperial state at this time, I would rather say, as um, very important cheap labor to get this fish out of the water. And they also were part of this um, state-initiated migrant movements. So they were sent to um, the west coast of the US, for instance, and then later on. So this was in the early 19s. And in the 1930s, I would say, they were sent to the Pacific Islands mainly. So in that sense, they were becoming increasingly important to sustain certain value and wealth for the imperial state. But on the other hand, they were also very much Preditious sort of racism, even one could say, and they were clearly seen as coming from the periphery from this whole sort of empire, even though they were incorporated into the Japanese national state earlier than other colonies or former colonies have been. So, in that sense, I think it was very ambivalent. And as a sort of funny side anecdote, it was also very important in a way that the label Okinawa fisherman was a sort of label for quality or expertise in, in certain skills. And in Singapore, for instance, certain people then pretended to be Okinawa fishermen once they took over the same techniques. So we can also see through that lens that it was um, sort of a very constructed identity. And do you have any concrete examples of the knowledge transfer here between Okinawa, Japan and the South Pacific territories, for instance? 
yes, there are very concrete examples. I mean, one example would be California. So many of the Okinawa fishermen went there and basically helped to, to build up a new tuna fisheries industry at the West Coast. They were expelled, many of them, and then they, they went back to Okinawa, but also sometimes to Taiwan, and then further on to the Pacific Islands. And one other reason um, why they couldn't stay in Okinawa was because basically the, the fish was going down. So the, the fishery grounds had to be moved, which was overfishing at one side, but on the other side, it was also the Kuroshio, one of the important currents in that region that meanders and changes its, its way over time. And that was one of the reasons why they also had to move. So what I basically want to say that there were also environmental factors involved in this story. You mentioned Taiwan just now, and of course, um, Japanese colonialism in Taiwan was the subject of your first book. Um, but you seem to be moving away from uh, colonies as territorial units now into a discussion of uh, Japanese imperialism in terms of currents and... Uh, people that move and fish that move. And of course, what connects all of this is, is the ocean. Um, are you part of a, would you characterize your work as part of a shift towards oceanic empire in East Asia? Yes, very much. I think that's basically the clue of my research that I follow tuna and the actors that interact with this particular species. And I think it's also very important that one considers the not only mining or oil as sort of one part of Japanese resource imperialism, and not only Japanese, by the way, I mean, generally speaking, resource imperialism, but really includes this oceanic dimension you mentioned. And there is a term in scholarship that was formed to sort of do this, and it's called pelagic empire, which basically means that this pelagic dimension, mainly the third dimension, not only the surface of the sea, but also the, the deep sea, um, is taken into account when we consider resource imperialism. And is that um, an argument that is being made not only with the case study of Japan, but more generally in environmental history, that when we think about natural wealth, it's about going down under the surface of the sea and not just thinking about uh, people moving across the sea or ships moving across the sea? Yes, very much. That's a recent um, tendency in environmental history, I would say. But still, when you look at the broader sort of research done, especially in global history, I would say the focus lies on movements across the surface, which is commodity chains or migration and also connections. And one thing I also want to look at in my work is where this, this sort of third dimension also shows us where it stops. So it's not only about connections, I think. Could you follow up a bit on how the picture changed by looking under the sea? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I think it changes, first of all, that we can see that tuna is really, one could say, a strategic resource of the Japanese empire. So it was very important to get this fish out of the water for the overall um, imperial economy. And it was also very important for this discourse and to a certain extent even sort of reality of autarky, which is 
we have until now, this is a really a legacy of this imperial time, this talk about autarky and being autarky as a national autarky in terms of food. What does that mean, sorry? So this means that um, you have to rely on your resources in terms of food, but also others. But in that, in that case, in the tuna case, it's mainly food, of course, um, and not rely on other resources. And during the empire, of course, it was then the idea to, to stretch out on a global scale even beyond the imperial territory to get these sources. So I think this is one of the advantages if we follow the tuna, that we can see that we do not have the borders of the empire there, the territory, but it's going beyond. It's the Indo-Pacific, it's even the Atlantic at a certain point in time, and many other seas. So when you say going across bigger units of the sea, and when you think about the imperial and transnational dimension, how do we write such a history of Japan? Yeah, I think it's then not only about Japan. So in a way, it reflects the place of Japan in a larger, let's say, global landscape. And what I think is fascinating is that it enables us to also overcome other containers. It's not only the national state container as Japan or the Japanese empire, but it also enables us to get across these various seas. So the Pacific is one of them, or then the Indian Ocean is another one. But as, as these fish migrate through all these seas, um, you can really get over this by just following them and the actors that follow this particular fish. What are the sources you use to follow a fish? It's um, various sources. One of the sources set is scientific, so basically knowledge production about the fish. One is scientific knowledge production, and the other one is also knowledge fishermen have. And I recently discovered some songs, so I will also include fishermen's song, how they kind of imagine catching tuna, but also the sea and the environment, and how this reflects then other ideas on the ocean, let's say, of intellectuals in the Japanese empire. And sometimes they really are congruent, and sometimes they differ enormously. So this is also my interest, to sort of get impressions of various actors um, into view. When I think of tuna in a non-Japanese context, then I usually think of tin tuna, what role does tin tuna play in this bigger story of tuna in Japan, building up a global empire using tuna as a resource? Could you say a bit about that? Yes. I think Japan started very early canning salmon and then followed up with doing the same for tuna. And they were even able to develop certain techniques to conserve tuna in oil, which was very seldom at that time. What time was that? That was in the 1920s. And through these sort of technical skills, they were also able to sell it much cheaper to other countries, such as the US and Europe. And especially during the Great Depression, the Japanese tinned tuna took over the US market. So they even tried to set up tariffs and sort of scale down the imports of the Japanese tuna. We started off by saying that Tuna is now a luxury good, and you've shown that that's partly because the meanings of tuna change 
quite dramatically over the last 100 years. But in this age of climate change and environmental destruction, is the value of CUNA also to do with the fact that CUNA is declining? Very much, I think, yes. And so we have recent ideas, and this is fascinating, of tuna management and sort of sustainability, which are driven mainly by the huge Japanese fisheries conglomerates. So they try to also sustain this resource for themselves and the global market to also sustain the, the value of it. But on the other hand, they also then were able to fulfill the hatchery cycle of tuna. So you can now even get sort of artificial tuna to eat. And certain restaurants already serve this in Tokyo or Osaka, which is sort of an interesting byproduct of this whole sustainability movement. You put inverted commas around artificial. What, what do you mean artificial tuna? It doesn't sound very tasty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, they would claim that it, sounds exact, it, it tastes exactly the same, um, even better. Because by making up new tuna, you can, for instance, build in much more toro, which is sort of the fatty part um, of the tuna, which some people really pay high prices for it as sushi. So in that sense, it's artificial, it's modificated, and it's not just swimming around, so they are hatched from the beginning. So does tuna still produce a lot of national wealth for Japan? It does still, but increasingly it's also very much declining. So comparing to the 1990s, I would say in the meantime, especially Taiwan, but also China and Korea took over. And the most productive tuna grounds, um, fishery grounds in the South Pacific are basically taken over by these nations. And I think there are various reasons for this. One is that they sort of took over the techniques, which they took over through um, technical aid programs um, in the early period of the Cold War, where Japanese, even war reparations, were invested in these sort of technical aid programs. And another reason also, of course, is that the labor is just much cheaper. Nadine Hay, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. 